Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Michigan Wolverines have blasted through the dregs of the Big Ten. But now they find themselves in a real fight, and it's from a team who has been a pest for over a decade. Welcome to Episode 7 of Road to the Victors, the story of the 1997 Michigan Wolverines. I'm your host, Andrew Hammond, Assistant Sports Editor at the Detroit Free Press. On this journey, we're taking you game by game, week by week, to give you the inside look at how the 1997 Michigan Wolverines captured their share of a national title. This week, Michigan is at home to face the Iowa Hawkeyes. It's a battle of two ranked teams, the number five Wolverines and the number 15 Hawkeyes. We are just over the halfway point in the season, and both Michigan and Iowa are statistically among the best teams in the nation entering this contest. It's all about Michigan's defense facing off against a high-flying Iowa offense. The Hawkeyes rank third in scoring offense with 45 points per game. Michigan's defense ranks first in the nation in scoring defense, holding opponents to an average of just five points a game. Total yards per game, Iowa's offense ranks second, Michigan's defense ranks second. Offensive passing efficiency, Iowa ranks second, Michigan's defensive pass efficiency ranks fourth. The rushing game. Iowa's offense ranks sixth. Michigan's defense against the run, fifth. Would the matchup of Michigan's defense against Iowa's offense tell the whole story of this one? More on that later. If you want the complete story of the 1997 Michigan Wolverines, the Free Press is publishing a commemorative book. Hail yes! The story of the 1997 Michigan Wolverines can be purchased at um.pictorial.mybook.com. If Ohio State and Michigan State are Michigan's biggest rivals, you can make a case the biggest fly in the Wolverine ointment from the 1980s into the 90s was the Iowa Hawkeyes. They became one of the first schools to break the Big Ten stranglehold that both Ohio State and Michigan held for so long. That was done under head coach Hayden Fry. Although it took a few years, Iowa's first Big Ten breakthrough came in 1981, when the Hawkeyes won a share of the Big Ten championship and went to the Rose Bowl. However, arguably the greatest moment in Fry's career came in 1985 against Michigan. In a rain-soaked mess, Iowa and Michigan were ranked number one and two in the country. A last-second field goal by the Hawkeyes gave them a memorable 12-10 victory. We now fast-forward 12 years later. Iowa enters the Michigan game fresh off their first defeat of the season, a 23-7 loss to Ohio State. Coming into the Michigan game, Iowa's 4-1 record was a bit of a mirage. Their five opponents were a combined 5-18 at that point. 
Michigan's strength of schedule was no better. Quite frankly, sitting at 5-0, the Wolverines' opponents had a combined record of 8-21. Something had to give at high noon in Michigan Stadium. When we come back, I am joined by Gene Myers, former sports editor at the Free Press, as we break down Michigan versus Iowa after the break. This is Road to the Victors, the story of the 1997 Michigan Wolverines. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Road to the Victors, the story of the 1997 Michigan Wolverines. I'm your host, Andrew Hammond, and this week I am joined by Gene Myers, former sports editor at the Free Press. Now, Gene, we've laid things out a few minutes ago, but I'd love to hear your perspective on how you you viewed the Iowa program at the time. Uh, They were coming off one of their, really, I, I would argue, their best run in school history. I know they won a national title in 61, but you're still in the modern age of college football this is their best run. And, and not only are they challenging Michigan and Ohio State's stranglehold on the Big Ten, but in some ways you can make a case that they had just as much success, if not even more, going from the 80s into the 90s. Yes, uh, just telling you that uh, right when I got out of high school in the late 70s, I worked for Universal Press Syndicate for a summer job. It's a company that delivered Doonesbury and Tack McNamara, a number of comic strips everyone knows, political uh, columnists. And one of their features was the bottom 10, which I love the bottom 10. And it was around for a long time. It ranked the 10 worst college football teams. And it always had a pithy comment about how bad the teams are. And for the Big Ten, the two teams that were always in the bottom 10 were Iowa and Northwestern. And then roughly 40 years ago, Iowa became the Iowa we know today, which proves there is hope for any team. Uh, Another team that was in that bottom 10 all the time was Kansas State. And Kansas State, for really 30-plus years, is always a top 25 team or right around there. So there's always hope if you just have the right people. And by 1997, Iowa had been pretty good for about 15 years. and all the times Michigan probably blew them out 50 to three or did whatever they wanted to do. Uh, Those days were long gone and they had been for about a decade and a half. And Iowa was just a kind of team, just like they are today, that people didn't want to play. You'd look at them on paper and they'd have like a couple of good players, like nowadays, like three great tight ends and no quarterback. Uh, This Iowa team in 1997 had a running back named uh, Tavian Banks, who was spectacular. Uh, I looked up a Tulsa coach, said he was the best back since Barry Sanders after he ran for 314 yards against them. And they also had 
a uh, receiver. Uh, uh, was it Tim Dwight? Was that his name? Absolutely. Tim, Tim Dwight. Dwight. Yeah. And he was also this incredible punt returner. And going into the game, a big thing would be, would Charles Woodson guard him? And everyone thought yes. And actually Woodson held him to like one catch. However, uh, Dwight had an incredible kickoff return for a touchdown and he had a, or, and he had a huge or a, a near touchdown and he had a long punt return for a touchdown. And it was just Iowa. They find these little ways to make up for the fact their quarterback was horrible in that game. But so uh, <laughs> that was, you know, everyone knew that Iowa was just a team that you think, oh yeah, on paper, no problem. But they were just Iowa. And this year when they played, uh, Iowa had a really good offense, which is the opposite of what we're used to nowadays, but had a really good offense. And in the game we're going to talk about, Michigan's defense actually really totally shut them down. However, Michigan was lucky to escape with his life. Oh, absolutely. And, and we'll we'll go into that. But, you know, uh, Michigan and Iowa uh, trade three and outs until midway through the first quarter. Uh, Michigan quarterback Brian Greasy throws an interception. And on the ensuing drive, Iowa, they fumble the ball, giving the ball back to Michigan. Following a scoreless first quarter, Greasy throws yet another interception, this time killing the Wolverines' drive deep in Iowa territory. How does Iowa make them pay? A 53-yard Tavian Banks touchdown to make the score 7-0. Here's how that play sounded from Frank Beckman and Jim Brandstatter on WJR and the Michigan Radio Network. Iowa on its own 47. Now they move Berger over to a wing right. Banks the only setback. Sherman changing the play at the line. And he gives the ball to quick hitter up the middle. Banks bursts through. Look out. He's in the 45 to 40. He's off to the races. Hendricks in pursuit. Will not catch Tavian Banks. Touchdown Iowa. Tavian Banks goes 53 yards. And the Hawkeyes go on top. 6-0 over the Wolverines. Uh, there's what happens when you turn the ball over. Michigan turned it over. And really, I think the defense gave Iowa a real lift. Michigan would tie the game with a greasy to tie streets touchdown, making the score 7-7. After Michigan's Marcus Wright picks off his second pass of the ball game, Greasy throws yet another interception that would lead to Iowa retaking the lead 13-7. As if the final four minutes of the first half couldn't end soon enough, Iowa's Tim Dwight ends the first half in crushing fashion for the Wolverines. Well, a key point right here, Josh Holtry has got to give Vincent a good snap. He's standing about two yards shy of the end line in the end zone. Here's the snap. Iowa does not break through, and there's a terrific punt by Vincent. This is going to drive Dwight back to his own 40. He races to his right. He's hemmed in. He cuts back to his left, setting up a block. Has running room up near midfield. Cuts back to the inside at the 45 and breaks into the clear, and Tim Dwight is going to go all the way for an Iowa touchdown on the final play of the first half. What a run by Tim Dwight. He reversed his field twice and went 60 yards for an Iowa touchdown. 
Wow. I tell you what, that's why you keep the ball away from him. This guy was hemmed in when he went to the right. He reversed his field. He got one block. Michigan over-pursued, and he was able to turn it and get back behind that first wave. And once he did that, he used his speed to go the distance. A 61-yard punt return as the clock runs out, ends the first half, making the score 21-7. Gene, we, we, we've talked about you know the, the moments where Bo decided to punt to Rocket Ismail in Notre Dame you know, in the early 90s, or it might have been 89. But it's still one of those situations. What is Lloyd doing punting to Tim Dwight? Like, you know he can do this, and he does it. <laughs> yes. He was, if I remember correctly, he was an All-American that season, basically just because he was a great receiver, but his return skills. And at that point, you know, I mean, Michigan's down, you know, not, not very much. And what's the only thing that Iowa was doing? They were capitalizing on like a big run and um, mistakes and the odds of Iowa driving the length of the field or doing anything crazy weren't very good. So it makes no sense why they punted to him. It was like the only way they could get hurt. And they did. And they got hurt. And that up, set up a halftime that was, uh, let's just say, another turning point in the season. And uh, I went back and looked, and uh, Carr's comment was he gave a locker room speech. He said everything was quiet. And he just said, quote, is there anyone in here who doesn't think we can win? And later, Marcus Ray said, didn't nobody say a word? And the at that point, you know, they're down 14, their first big deficit. Brian Greasy, who had never really been called on to win a game, uh, is actually going to have to find a way to win this game, even though he's a large part why they have to do that, because he tried to lose it in the first half. And Carr was asked, did he consider replacing Greasy at halftime, going with the veteran Scott Driesbach? And the number two quarterback at the time actually was Tom Brady, but he was out with an appendix problem. So Carr's quotes were, what did he think of Greasy at halftime? He said, I wanted to kill him. And then he laughed. And then he said, are you crazy? Brian Greasy is the guy who doesn't get rattled. I just went to him and said, Brian, this is why you're here. It's your time. It's your team. Bring them back. Just win. And Greasy did what he did. He came back and he led them to victory. And the odd part is he only really completed seven passes in the second half. He only had six. He had like six or something, something like that in the first half. But he made big plays. He scored on a sneak. Uh, he won the game with a you know a goal line pass to Jermaine Tuman with like three minutes left in the game. He just played like a leader and didn't make state mistakes. And it was his first time where he really had to win the game. And again, he had to win it because he almost lost it. And he really wouldn't have to do that again until the Rose Bowl when. Uh, Michigan was playing Washington State, a, a better team than Iowa. And in the second half, he had to win that game, and he did. And it just shows you 
the amazing story of Brian Greasy. <laughs> right, because you know at this point in the season, this is maybe the lowest point for Michigan. Uh, the the defense is bending but not breaking. The special teams isn't special because remember they they had a field goal blocked, and then Brian Greasy he, he's playing like three day old hot dog water. He's horrible. He's putrid. He's god awful. At that moment, looking back, are you thinking to yourself, well, here we go. Here comes the old classic mid-season choke job. Here we go. Like, this, this is how it ends. This, this, this is, here we go. <laughs> you know, the interesting thing, I remember exactly what I was doing that afternoon. I was over at Kensington Metro Park, sort of outside Brighton, and I was riding my bike and I was rollerblading. And I was listening to this game. And as the first half went on, I was I, I cannot believe they are unbeaten, number five in the country, when they are playing this bad. It's like, okay, this is the worst nightmare. This is going to be their midseason game that at the end of the year, as they go to play Ohio State, you go, how did they ever lose that game? And it looked like they might lose it badly. And uh, I'm sure everyone at the stadium just like when they fell behind at Notre Dame at halftime, we're like, uh-oh, uh-oh. But this time they came back and they did it just like at the Notre Dame game. They scored right away in the second half. And then soon after that, got a lead, fell behind again, because after they took the lead, uh, Dwight had a long kickoff return that set up a field goal. And instead of uh, having to hold on, well, they had to go win the game late in the fourth quarter, then hold on. So it, uh, I think this one, you know, every, every championship team has some game that is a challenge. And like we just saw, you know, Georgia barely, barely beat Missouri, which makes no sense. But every team has a game like that. And you wanted to hope this was Michigan's. When we come back, Michigan has to climb out of a massive hole. And I mean very massive hole when Road to the Victors returns after this break. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Road to the Victors, the story of the 1997 Michigan Wolverines. Michigan is down 21-7 at the half, and to break everything down with me is Gene Myers, former sports editor at the Free Press. We've talked about how everything went wrong for the Wolverines in the first half. However, things would quickly turn in the Wolverines' favor. Brian Greasy connects with Russell Shaw for a 10-yard touchdown on the first drive in the second half, making the score 21-14 Iowa. After a series of stalled drives, Greasy would tie the score with a one-yard sneak across the goal line. Even though it looked like Anthony Thomas had scored multiple times from short yardage, and we talked about how important Greasy has been for this team, but it, it you kind of alluded to in the previous segment, this feels like 
this is the moment for him. This is, it's like, you've gone through all of this stuff. Now you're in a position to lead this team back. And it feels like it's kind of a climax for his career, not even knowing what lies ahead. Like, this feels like a very important moment, not only in his football career, but life, you could argue. I would say absolutely. And people remember Greasy leading this comeback. In that second half, he threw two touchdown passes and scored on a sneak. But what people forget is, you know, Anthony Thomas ended up being a career rushing leader at Michigan. But at that moment, he was just a freshman. And the featured back was Chris Howard. And Howard got hurt and never had a carry in the second half. So for the first time, not only did Greasy have to win a game, Thomas really had to carry the load. Also, their star fullback, Chris Floyd, never played. He had a rib injury. So Greasy had to lead this comeback without his reliable backfield. And that that he did it, and he did it so well, was definitely a defining moment. His comment after the game was, whenever a bad situation happens, you can make it an opportunity to show what you're made of. And this was his, this is what I'm made of. And I'm sure in the big picture now, as we look back, the team probably had confidence in him, but they really had confidence in him. And this was a big moment and, and, and for everything for that season and probably for Greasy. Iowa would tack on a field goal to regain the lead 24-21 as we go into the fourth quarter. The Wolverines would take the lead for good as Greasy would cap off his comeback by linking up with Jeremy Tooman for the score. Ryan Greasy huddling his offense near the 10. Here we go. Ray Jackson and Anthony Thomas in the backfield. Three tight end look. Everybody jams in tight. Greasy calling the signals. Turns, fakes to Thomas. Rolls right. Has a man in the end zone. Touchdown, Jeremy Tooman. in the first half has left Michigan from behind and the Wolverines have the lead for the first time 27 to 24 with 255 to play in the football game and I think Jeremy Tuman has just made a case for player of the game he made some big plays in this game and that was a huge one but upcoming and even bigger Iowa had one more chance to steal a victory in Ann Arbor, but the Michigan Wolverines defense would make sure that didn't happen. Dwight split to the right. Damon Gibson to the left. Split backfield for Banks and Berger. Sherman will throw. Steele coming. He gets picked up late. On the run, the pass away. Intercepted by Sam Sword. Michigan will win the football game. Michigan survives 28-24. It's the second comeback of the season, one against a rival Notre Dame. Now they're doing it in conference play against 15th-ranked Iowa. Is it a situation that you're waiting for the other shoe to drop and you're just thinking, okay, this team is going to choke it away. They've done this in the past. But at the same time, they're persevering. And now you're thinking, instead of pessimism, there's some optimism, and you're thinking, okay, this team 
maybe even more special than we initially thought. Were, were you thinking that after this game? Well, I'll tell you one person who I think was thinking that, and that was Coach Lloyd Carr, because his big comment after the game was this. I don't know how we won it, but this is a courageous bunch of kids. I've been in athletics a long time, and I don't remember a better comeback than this, which is pretty strong words. And you're right. In some ways, how did Michigan win this game when they gave up a whole series of big plays and they had some key players who were hurt? And But they did. They, they rallied, and then they made the late stand well, when Sam Sword made that interception. Uh, he also had a fumble recovery and a tackle for loss and just played a, an incredible game, uh, which everyone knew Michigan had a great defense, but now it learned that it had an offense that could compete. And I think a lot of people thought, you know, this, this team is for real. Uh, if you remember, the next game coming up was against Michigan State, and that would be the big, big test, everyone thought. And I'm sure fans really thought, wow, we had our chance to blow it, and we didn't. You're hoping, you know, maybe it's still something bad could happen against Michigan State, but I think a lot of people were much more confident because they saw the offense sort of save the day which really had not happened or had not had to happen so far that season. You know, uh, you mentioned the offense and, and having to save the day. Uh, we're still in a situation with Michigan football where it feels like it's all about defense and running the football. These are kind of the baselines of what they have to do. Michigan traditionally up until that point hasn't had to make those massive comebacks. This feels like this is one of the first times that you're seeing the aerial display really show up for the Wolverines. Is that the kind of sense that you got, you know, in 97 and kind of moving forward? Because there would be some other moments where the Michigan passing game would shine through, but for the first time, it's the offense that's having to put the ball in the air, trying to do non-Michigan-like things to essentially save their season. Uh, definitely, definitely. The irony of Carr's uh, quote, another quote after the game was, our game plan was to eliminate big plays and don't turn the ball over. So all they did was give up big plays and turn the ball over. Still, the defense really played a great game. Uh, they were given the short, <laughs> short stick a lot of times. They surrendered a third-quarter field goal. The only points to that point of the season now, they had surrendered three third-quarter field goals. So in the second half, no points in the fourth quarter, nine points in the third quarter. And you just knew, okay, this has the great defense. And you saw that Michigan found a way to win, and it had to break its tendency some by going more aerial and just putting the emphasis like, okay, we have to score, not, oh, we just have to, you know, stop them all the time and we'll eventually score or we'll make an interception or Charles Woodson will run a punt back or something will happen. And, you know, it, it did. And it would for the rest of the season. And it would when the key moments would come in the Rose Bowl. Um, 
you know, if it doesn't happen against Iowa, it doesn't happen against those other and those other teams. And we're not talking about the 97 season here on the podcast. Michigan wasn't the only team that had survived that Saturday. In State College, Pennsylvania, Penn State had been held in check by lowly Minnesota before making a comeback 16-15. to It was a relatively quiet day around the country with few upsets, except for Michigan's opponent next week, the Michigan State Spartans. A week after Northwestern was outclassed by the Michigan Wolverines, they pull off a shocking upset in Evanston over the 12th-ranked Michigan State Spartans, setting up a classic showdown in East Lansing between the Spartans and Wolverines. Before we go, our guest has been Gene Myers. Game audio has been provided by WJR and the Michigan Radio Network. Anjanette Delgado and Kirkland Crawford are the executive producers of this podcast. Carrie Jr. II provides technical support. Peter Batia is the editor of the Detroit Free Press. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe to Road to the Victors on Apple, Spotify, or your preferred streaming app of choice. And find us at freep.com slash podcasts. Please subscribe, leave a rating, and tell your friends about us. It really does help. For more information on the 1997 Michigan Wolverines, pre-order the book, Hail Yes, the story of the 1997 Michigan Wolverines at Freep.com. I'm Andrew Hammond, and we'll see you next week. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.